Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, I have been gone for two weeks and I know, I know. You had podcasts, but that's because I recorded them early. So welcome to 2021, 2021. Sounds always, it's so fun to say these 2020 type uh, years. Um, It was nice to get a break. I hope all of you out there got some semblance of a break. I know we have a lot of first responders as well as medical personnel that follow the podcast and are members of our community. And I hope that you at least got to have an evening to yourself where you just got to breathe because I know things are overwhelming in California. We have 0% capacity in our hospitals. And so people who even have, you know, heart attack, stroke, or having a difficult time finding a place to go. So it's really scary times. Please be safe out there, everybody. Please be stay home if you can, you know, wash your hands, don't touch your face, all those things that we've been learning and dealing with now for almost an entire year. And I, I, the last question actually for this week's podcast addresses this, but I just uh, wanted to let you know that I'm in it with you. I know a lot of people are struggling with the idea of a second lockdown and we're all in different stages of lockdowns, whether we're in, you know, Australia or different parts of Europe or the United States, Canada, everybody's going through stuff differently. And so I just wanted to let you know that I'm in it with you. I'll talk about when I answer that question, some of the things that I'm doing to try to cope and also just to acknowledge the fact that it's hard. And I've been having a hard time. I was talking to Sean when we were on a walk just yesterday. And I said, I just feel like it's round two, like everybody thought that like, oh, 2021, you know, it's going to be better. And it's not that I don't believe it can be better, because I do have hope for a better future. However, it's still the same, you know, and I just told him, I was like, I feel like I just finished this first round of a boxing match. And I'm like, exhausted. And I've been hit a few times. And now the ding, ding, the bell rings again, and it's round two, and I have to go out. And I, and I was like, I don't want to go out. <laughs> and so just know that I'm there with you. And I have hope for better things. And that hope comes out of the fact that, you know, we have treatments and vaccines and people staying home and taking things seriously. And hopefully we can climb our way out of this. And anyway, I love you. I see you. I hear you. I'm in it with you. And I just wanted to let you know that we're all in it and gotta have hope, man. Gotta have hope. Okay. Enough about me. Uh, Sean and I, oh, by the way, we didn't even go anywhere over the holidays. We just stayed home, which was kind of interesting slash sad and weird, but you know, the only safe way, because I didn't want to get anybody sick. We have to fly in order to get to Montreal to visit his family. And we'd have to fly. We could drive to Washington. It's a, you know, 18, 20 hour drive. But um, we just made the executive decision to stay home this holiday season. And it wasn't bad, but it was pretty boring. I'll be honest. And even taking vacation didn't really feel like vacation because I was still, you know, just at home. But I enjoyed the time off and it was good to recharge. And I have some ideas for new things this year. And oh, and if you are waiting for the pillows to be released that second batch, we had an issue because the factory that was creating the fabric got shut down due to COVID restrictions. But we did find another fabric and it's really it's black. It's fuzzy. It's just like a quilted look. It looks amazing, feels amazing. I'm excited about it. So Denise is ordering it. And hopefully I'll have that to out into the world so you can order them um, as soon as possible. Okay, that's enough of the housekeeping. Let's get into your questions. Now, question number one says, hello, Howdy do. Says, can emotional abuse or neglect lead to complex PTSD? Yes, 100%. Hypervigilance, also yes. And dissociation. I have experienced this during my whole childhood, but have never been sexually or physically abused. And I was wondering if emotional abuse is, a, is quote unquote enough to get CPTSD. I hear this all the time. Yes, 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 yes. Abuse is abuse is abuse is abuse. It doesn't matter if we see it, if there's actually bruises or broken bones emotional abuse is just as painful, just as detrimental, just as harmful as any other form of abuse. And I think the the problem with it is that 
it's kind of the problem with mental health issues is if we can't see the problem, right? If we can't see the pain or can't see the bipolar disorder, the PTSD, the depression, you know, if we can't see it, oftentimes we have a tough time believing that it exists. It's almost like we have to have faith in it when we're looking at out in other people. However, if we consider ourselves, if we have to quote unquote, see it, you're feeling it and seeing it. When it comes to hypervigilance, dissociation, you're probably having flashbacks. You might feel on edge a lot. You know, there's a lot of things that you could be experiencing that maybe you just have gotten used to. Unfortunately, when we have had trauma in our childhood, oftentimes our norm or quote unquote norm is one filled with hypervigilance and, you know, avoiding certain situations, smells, tastes, people, things like that, uh, you know, blanking out on time, having dissociative episodes where we don't remember things like that can be part of our norm. And so anyways, I'm going to get off topic. So let's pull it back, Katie. I want you to know that any kind of abuse and any kind of uh, time or situation or experience that makes us fear for our life or the life of someone else, or is so disruptive that we feel threatened, that our safety and security feels threatened, is enough to cause a PTSD-like response. If that is a repeated instance where we have a lot of situations where we fear for the life, uh, for the safety um, of ourselves or others or our life or someone else's life, if we have something that's upsetting in that way and it happens over and over, then that's enough to cause uh, complex PTSD. And so I know that those of us with emotional abuse in our backgrounds feel like it's not enough because we can't see it. We can't uh, tangibly, you know, feel it maybe. I don't know. I just feel like if you really are honest with yourself, you're feeling the abuse. We just don't see it happening to us in the same way. Meaning there's no, no like active hitting. There's no slapping, punching or any sexual uh, behaviors that aren't appropriate. There's, there's none of that. And I, I just am here to tell you that emotional abuse is abuse. Any abuse is abuse and no uh, type one type of ab abuse isn't worse or better than another. It's all abuse. And it can all lead to complex PTSD if it happens multiple, multiple times. And that's really it. Um, please reach out and seek help from hopefully a trauma specialist if you can. But most therapists have some knowledge and wherewithal and ability to treat trauma. Just find one where you feel heard, understood, and, you know, over time safe seeing. That's the most important thing. And boundaries are going to be really important. You don't want a therapist that allows you to call them any time of day and text them and they text right back or email in response. You know, we want to make sure that we have a a therapist who's going to allow us to heal and not overly attach onto them, you know, and kind of activate that in us because that kind of attachment when it comes to healing from trauma can be not as helpful because it's almost like we're taking that our therapist and we're trying to put them in that hole of ourselves that the trauma or abuse left. And I want you to be able to fill that yourself. I don't want you to have your therapist be the the role and the, or the person who's going to fill that void, if that makes sense. And so finding someone who has healthy boundaries, works with trauma a lot. I have videos with um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman, talking about trauma and her experience because she is a trauma specialist. We talk about all those things. There's EMDR, schema therapy, somatic experiencing, parts work. There's all sorts of different trauma treatments. Please reach out and get help because trust me, emotional abuse is enough to have complex PTSD. Okay? Let's get a drink of water. As we move into question number two, it says, hi, Katie. Hello, hello. How do I, in the best way, allow myself to be honest in therapy? Many times I make something sound less bad or not truly express how I feel or how bad it actually is. That's so common. It's just, or it just feels impossible to not keep doing this every time I find a new therapist. I've seen quite a few and just stop when it gets too hard. It's like, I just can't open up and put on, um, and I put on a happy face for them or even for them. This is so common. I hear from tons and tons of our members of our community, as well as from my patients, that it can be really difficult to talk about certain things. Obviously, if we've been keeping things a secret in our own head for so long and from other people in our lives for as long as we can remember, it can be hard to all of a sudden go into a session with a stranger and tell them everything we never told anybody. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming, right? And so it's very normal. I just want you to know that, that this feeling is very normal and it, it's not a natural experience or a regular human experience to go in to talk to a stranger and tell them all the things that you never tell anybody else. That's just a very strange 
thing that we've created, a very strange environment, right? And that's why it feels uncomfortable. So that's okay. However, the best way to allow yourself to be honest in in therapy is instead of talking about a specific thing, because that can be too difficult, that can be too triggering, is to tell your therapist in one way or another that you're doing this. Let's talk about this specific behavior. Let's not talk about the things that we aren't being fully honest about or the situations or things that we felt that we downplayed or invalidated. Let's just talk about the fact that we know we're doing it. And I know that that sounds weird and you're like, but that's not going to help me be honest. Just trust me when I tell you it will. Because once your therapist knows that this is something that you're struggling with, because therapists aren't mind readers. We are very good at reading people in situations and we can notice if someone is maybe shifting in their seat or seems uncomfortable or doesn't isn't quick to answer like something's a little bit difficult for them to come around to we'll notice things like that but I'm not going to know if that means for sure that you're you know lying or downplaying or whatever I can you know with some efficacy I can see and, and tell when people are lying but not all the time and so if I know that my patient is having a tough time being honest and fully expressing how they feel and how bad they they feel like things actually are for them, then I will know that when they say they're feeling like a six out of 10, one of my favorite Doty songs, um, when they say they're feeling that way, then, you know, we, then I'll know that maybe it's a little bit worse, right? It gives me a, a little buffer room and a little understanding. So I can say, oh, when they're saying that, you know, the the test went pretty well, or that this, they did okay, or that that was, it was a little bit upsetting, but they moved through it. I know that that might not fully be true. And I can kind of probe a little bit more, not in an intense way, but more like, okay, so you said it wasn't that bad. Like, tell me what happened. Can you walk me through what went on? You know, and that's when I can ask the tougher questions. And I can give a little, a little nudge, a little pushback against the, it wasn't that bad or, but I've gotten over it. I hear that all the time from my patients. They'll be like, well, yeah, it was hard at the time, you know, and the time being like a month ago, it was hard at the time, but now I'm okay. And I'm like, really? Okay. Okay. Well, well, tell me what happened, you know, and then that even brings up a lot of emotional response. And then I can, be curious about that emotional response. Be like, it seems like it's still pretty raw for you. Would that be fair to say that, you know, it actually maybe is a little bit more more emotionally charged than we had anticipated? You know, we can talk about that and get into it that way. And so I think instead of worrying about being honest in therapy, which we should try to, but some of those behaviors and I don't know, just the way we interact with other people can be so ingrained in us that we we don't know how to stop it, right? Like I am a people pleaser and my therapist and I were working on this for forever. And it's still something that she brings up every once in a blue moon where she'll be like, uh, you're doing that thing again, you know, kind of call me out a little bit. I wish she'd be a little more harsh, but she's very soft. So she'd be like, I get the feeling that you're trying to do what you think I want you to do, you know? And I'll be like, damn it. But she mentions it. And your therapist might be able to mention, you know, I, I've noticed that you've said this isn't that hard or isn't that hurtful, but it seems like it might be. I know I personally would, would find that hard or hurtful. And anyway, I'm just saying that instead of trying to worry about being honest, we can talk about the fact that it's difficult. I think what my best advice to you would be, would be to maybe either write an email if your therapist allows that or write something down and read it out in session. I'd write down kind of what you told me. Say, you know, sometimes in therapy, I I try to make something sound less bad. I do that sometimes. Or I don't truly express how I feel or how bad it actually is. And you can just tell her or him or her, like, you know, I feel like I do this with every therapist I see. I don't know why it's so hard for me. I, can't, I have a tough time opening up. If you think you can just read, even just reading your question that you wrote to me, if you can read that to your therapist, I think that could be really helpful. Because then they can kind of know notice when you're doing it. They can not, because it's not a therapist role, like call us out all the time. Like I was saying, I like my therapist calling me out on it. Not all therapists are like that. And if you don't want that, you can say, I don't need you to call me out on it, but I need you just to push a little bit further, ask a little, a, a few more questions or, you know, try to get me to open up a little more. You can say things like that. And, and I know that that's kind of difficult, but hopefully it's a little bit easier than just trying to figure out how to be honest in therapy, because that can feel impossible. And know that you're not alone. It's something that Every therapist, if you've been practicing, if they've been practicing for even a few years, have tons of tools in their toolbox that they can use to try to help you better understand where this is coming from, note when it's happening the most, are there certain subjects that are off limits, they can help you figure it out so that we can kind of 
break it down and, and slowly work towards and on a more open and honest us. But again, like, it's, again, it's not a natural thing for us just to walk in and talk to a stranger and share our deepest, darkest secrets. Some of us, it takes us a little bit longer to feel like we can trust them, feel like we can be honest and feel like we can be vulnerable. And so I think the way in is to tell them that you're having a tough time with this. Like, just tell tell them how you told it to me. You know, I don't feel I try to make things sound less bad. I downplay things and I don't really let you know how bad things really feel. And they might ask like, oh, really? Well, when's the last time you did that? And say, it's hard for me to talk about that, but I would like to figure out why I'm doing this. Okay. And that could be kind of another way in, but hopefully that helps you kind of push through it. We all go through that period of time in therapy, unless you're, because I think there's people like that. And then there's people like me who like verbal diarrhea, like here's my whole life. I'm like sobbing and I feel this way and everything is hard. And I like do this overwhelmed dump of everything. And my therapist is like, okay, so what I heard you say, and then she like repeats back like certain points. And so let's start getting to work on that. Some of them, some of you are probably like me, but a lot of you are probably like the person who asked this question. And it's okay to not put the whole burden of being honest on ourselves. And it's okay to tell our therapist that we're struggling with it because then they can offer questions and tools and resources and and push us a little until we do feel okay opening up. Okay. Sound good. And it's normal to feel that way mainly because either we've never had a good experience in the past. Maybe we've opened up to people who've hurt us or we've never been shown healthy behavior around relationships and being vulnerable and opening up. Maybe that wasn't something anybody in our life ever did. So the the idea of doing it seems foreign and, and uncomfortable. There's a lot of reasons and that's why it's so very common. So just bring this up. Let's talk about why that's happening instead of worrying so much about being honest right now. We'll get there. Okay. Question number three says, hi, Katie, do you have any advice on choosing what to prioritize in session when every week it seems like there's something more important? For example, one week I would want to focus on my anxiety and the next it seems more important to focus on a particular relationship. Thanks for all you do. Of course. And this is also a very common question. Um, even if we have like multiple diagnoses and we're like, well, ugh, which one do I work on first? And the truth about this is you get to prioritize what is important to you during that time. I think something that I would encourage you to mention to your therapist is that you'd like to create some long-term goals together because I work using what's called a treatment plan. And I put that together most, I don't know, I've gotten pushback from other therapists about this. And I really just, I, I stick to my guns, you guys. I believe every therapist should have some form of a treatment plan with each and every patient. It doesn't have to be a crazy formal, like five page thing like we had to do when I worked in the eating disorder treatment center or the hospital. No, but should there be some semblance of tools that we've used, tools that we're going to try and goals that we want to work on? I think there should be. And so what I would encourage you to say to your therapist is, hey, I'd like to put together some kind of treatment plan, like with a few goals, because, and then I would mention because I struggle to choose what I should prioritize in session. And I feel like, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm just speaking, this is an idea. I feel like if I had these long-term goals that you and I both had talked about, and we knew we were working on them, that you would ensure we moved in that direction. I wouldn't have to worry so much about bringing up the wrong thing in session. Because again, kind of even with the last question about like, how do I get more honest and stuff? It's not all on you as the patient to make that decision. And it's not all on the therapist. It's about you working together. And so if we come up with like this treatment plan and some of these goals that we want to achieve, and we've talked about them with our therapist, and we know that we're doing that, then from a therapist perspective, I would have tools and techniques and things and questions I would have. And like, I would have some stuff that I would want to do with you to help you move towards those goals. And even if you brought up like, oh, I'm having a difficult time in this particular relationship, I would probably try to tie it back to one of our main issues. Meaning like, if you said, oh, this relationship in my life is feeling really, I don't know, maybe manipulative or toxic or overwhelming or whatever, non-supportive, whatever it may be, then I can say, you know, that kind of reminds me of this other situation. And you felt very similar. Have, Have there been other relationships or other situations that brought this out in you? And where do you think that comes from, right? If we're working told, towards this goal of, um, I don't know, like feeling less anxious, 
I relationships can play into that and our relationship with ourselves and our confidence and our ability to put ourselves out there and like all of that can kind of tie into it. And so even if you feel like, oh, maybe I'm taking my therapist off on this tangent, or maybe I'm wasting my time in therapy because I'm bringing up this thing that I don't know, I don't even know how to prioritize what it is, but it's bothering me now. Hopefully, by having these goals and having this conversation with your therapist, you'll be able to relax into the fact that like you don't have to ensure that you prioritize things. It's kind of up to your therapist to keep bringing it back to what is important and what is working you toward your goal with within therapy, I guess. And I know that that means that we have to trust our therapist more. But just hang with me and trust me that that does work because it's that combination of you being honest, talking, trying the homework, working the tools and techniques when you're out of therapy. It, it, that's your effort in therapy is doing those things. And then the therapist's effort is in ensuring that we are offering new tools and techniques as needed, that we are giving you space to vent and express what you're going through. And we are challenging you to get better. Like in my book, Are You Okay? I talk about, you know, the signs that we're seeing a good therapist versus a bad therapist. I have videos about that as well. And that's kind of part of it is like your therapist should challenge you, not push you too much or too fast, but should challenge you as they help you work toward your goal or goals in therapy and so that you don't have to worry about what to prioritize. But I will say, so, okay, let's say you you listen to that. You're like, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound right, Katie. I think that's garbage advice. That's fair. I think what I would, my next thought is that you can come up with some goals on your own and then with those goals in mind, consider what you think is the biggest priority this week. That could help too, because you can do it on your own. I just think it's a little bit easier to know that someone else is going to hold us accountable and going to make sure we move forward through that. And yeah, that's kind of why I would why I would do it that way. But I hope that that helps. I know that a lot of you worry about that. And the truth about it is that what we prioritize in therapy is really, and this sounds so cheesy to say it this way, but it's like we prioritize ourselves. You're putting yourself first. You're giving yourself an opportunity to vent about everything going on and you don't need to cause yourself more grief and anxiety by worrying about what you should have or shouldn't have brought up in therapy. It's all game. It's all fair game. It's all fair to talk about. It's just part of the process. And it's no surprise that you struggle with anxiety as well, because this worry, this worry is getting into your therapy sessions as it does, and making you even struggle with the idea of going to therapy. And so bringing that up, letting your therapist know that you kind of need to make those goals and that you struggle with knowing what to prioritize and mention and all of that and that you worry and you think it's part of your anxiety. All of that is very helpful and help you move through it and help you know what to, you know, not that you have to know what to talk about next, but they will, they will know how to help you continue moving forward. Okay. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Question number four says, do you believe it's always possible for a patient to overcome an attachment to their therapist? In these past few weeks, my brain has brought me to believe that I'll never get over my attachment to my therapist and have a normal and happy life. Thoughts like this have been running through my head nonstop. It's a constant battle against my own mind, and sometimes it feels like I'm going crazy. I can't stop thinking about my therapist. I don't miss her in between sessions, but she's become like an obsessive thought that I can't get rid of. I've been thinking about quitting therapy as I know that this will um, that this eventually would make my attachment to her fade away. However, I'm aware that escaping from the problem is not the right thing to do. How do I make this stop? So many thumbs ups to this and so many questions over the years about attachment to our therapist. And I do believe that it is possible for us to overcome this attachment. However, we cannot do it without the support and understanding of our therapist. And I know that sounds weird. And maybe you're like, but I'm supposed to get over it on my own. I have to figure out this attachment shit. No, there's a reason that you're in therapy. And the reason that you're in therapy is because doing things on your own hasn't worked. And so we need someone, an outside perspective, a professional with an education about this to help us better sort it. And so by telling your therapist about this, if you haven't already, will really hopefully help us work through it. So in my mind, the way that I would work on this with a patient is to try to understand where this attachment or where this this kind of gaping hole of 
of care and love that we maybe should have gotten from someone else? Or where did this start? Where did where did this like wound come from? Is it from our childhood? Was our mom not around as much or our dad not very caring? Or is it something a little bit later in life? Did we have a really abusive partner at some point that, you know, told us we're no good. And then our therapist tells us we're good. And we're like, Oh, I like you. And I want to, you know, have you around all the time. Like, where is it coming from? What started this? What perpetuated it? And how is like, what's my role in it? Because as a therapist, when a patient is overly attached to you, there is a role that you play. And I think that the sooner the therapist can recognize the things they're doing that maybe they thought were benign. Like, for instance, a lot of therapists are like, oh, well, they texted and I just happened to be available. So I responded and gave them an answer. And I'm like, da, 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 da. What, what conversations have you had about the texting, right? We should have told our patients ahead of time that you can only text me for emergencies or scheduling conflicts and things that need to be redone. And then I only reply during like work hours, you know, between nine and six for me. So they know that even if they text or even if they call, um, they're only going to hear from me during those times. And if it's an emergency, they have to call 911. You know, my, my voicemail says all those things, blah, blah, blah. But again, that part was on me as a therapist, talking to them about what's expected, explaining them what the boundaries are and upholding them. And so I think telling your therapist about this and just say that it's like, it feels like obsessive because this could be attachment. Or it could be part of OCD. A lot of us have pure OCD where it's like pure O OCD, sorry, where it's like these uh, are intrusive thoughts run our brain. And the compulsions that we do are usually mental compulsions. Sometimes they can be physical, but for some people, it's just mental. That's why it's like the pure O, so the obsession component, the obsessive thoughts, the obsessive rumination, or t- uh, usually they're terrible thoughts about like... Uh, violence, death, sex, things like that. Um, But anyway, I I don't know if it's part of that too, but I would bring this up with your therapist. I would let them know because if we don't let them know, we can't work through it. They can't offer assistance and boundaries and guidance and understanding and communication to help you heal so that this doesn't continue to happen, right? Because attachment comes for like pure OCD comes out of a certain reason, right? It's usually anxiety driven. There's something going on, right? So we need to understand if that's it. If it is only, if it is like specific to attachment or if it's an attachment wound or whatever, we need to understand what that is and then we need to work to heal it, right? And so maybe that's some inner child work or some reparenting that we have to do. And I know that that stuff can be hard, but if we don't know that we even need to do it, we can't work to make it better, right? And so I would just kind of encourage you to let your therapist know that you're feeling some attachment feelings or uh, have, you know, you think about her more than you feel is normal and you're worried if that's connected to attachment and that, you know, just explain it as best as best as you can, because I'm not going to lie to you. We deal with this all the time. Attachment is Oh, so common in therapy, because for for many people, we never have a relationship that is all about us, where someone really hears us, seeks to understand, validates our experience, is consistent with seeing us, right? Therapists see you usually, I see most of my patients like on the same day and time every week, and it's been their time for, you know, long time. That consistency and that care and that compassion, that connection can lead to attachment stuff. And so Bringing it up and talking about it allows you to overcome it because yes, I believe, just to answer that first part of the question, yes, I believe it is always possible for a patient to overcome the attachment. However, we have to do the work. That's always the caveat in therapy. Things don't just fix themselves randomly. I wish they did. I wish we had like a magic pill we could take or something that would just all of a sudden, poof, you know, snap our fingers. We're back in business, baby. No, unfortunately, we have to work for it. But the motivation and the want to work for it is is really the biggest thing. And so it sounds like you want to, which is great. We need to bring it up to our therapist so they can offer their own tools and techniques and thoughts about it. And then we really just got to do the work. And that's how you make it stop. Cool? Cool. Ugh, my nose. I feel like every time I'm on doing a podcast, my nose itches. I think it might be the vibration from talking and having the mic really close. I think that's what does it. Okay. Question number five. Hey, Katie, how can I take constructive criticism? Every time someone criticizes me, I feel deeply offended. I know people just want me to do better, but I still feel bad when someone criticizes me. Any advice would be helpful. Thank you. This was a great question. I don't think I've talked about this 
ever, which is always a shocker to me. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should put this on the list of, of videos to create. And to that end, you guys, I am going to try to make the videos a little bit more creative this year. I'll still do the regular talk to camera ones because I know you guys like those. Um, a lot of you prefer that kind of content. But for every, I'd like to do every other video being more of like maybe a short film or something just a little bit more engaging so I can teach you about the brain and mental health stuff in hopefully just a different way so that it's it's like easier for more of us to conceptualize if that makes sense. And so maybe this is one of those ones I try to make a little bit more uh, creative and interesting. So anyways, back to this constructive criticism. The reason I don't even, I don't know. Okay, I have a lot of thoughts, <laughs> clearly. So constructive criticism is hard for a lot of people to take because it's criticism. When someone critiques us and tells us the things that we've done wrong or the ways that we could have done something in a, a more efficient or better way, we're going to get a little defensive, right? That's kind of part of our protective armor, where someone says something that we we think is a threat, right? It's a threat to our confidence. It's a threat to our security. Maybe, you know, it feels like it's a threat to who we've, we've always thought that we are. So like if I've always believed wholeheartedly that I am a super organized person and someone tells me like, you know, the one thing that I really wish you'd work on is like your organizational skills. I might feel, oh, put off and I might react out of that and get defensive and say things like, you're telling me I'm not organized, you're not organized, right? We can get really upset and we can kind of want to lash back out or we can shut down. And so criticism, constructive or not, can be hard to take because it can feel damaging, it can feel threatening. And so a couple of things that I want you to try, I would like you to re to uh, do some research we're going to be detectives, okay? So put on your detective hat. And I want you to journal about the last few times that you've been criticized. This when you've when someone has given you and offered some constructive criticism, I want you to write about what it was. And if you remember certain phrases that they said, because I'm sure you do, I'm sure you have like these quotes that you keep, you know, running over and over and over and over again in your head. I want you to write about those. And I want you to consider what it was about that that was so hurtful. And do that for quite a few of these scenarios, as many as you can remember, but no more. Let's let's like cap it at five, just so we don't get overwhelmed. Okay, we want to keep it kind of like short and something you can do in an evening. So once you've written those things out, and you've kind of better understood what they said, what they were criticizing, what they were critiquing, maybe, you know, what, what did they, what words did they use when they told you that you should improve this? And like, how was it verbalized? And then I want you to look for patterns. Usually there are certain things that, or it could even be people. Are these people that you actually care about and are close to you? I, I saw a quote recently that, man, it really resonated with me. And it said, I don't take criticism from people who I don't turn to for advice. And I just want you to hear that. I don't take criticism from people who, that I don't turn to for advice. I 100% agree with that. If we aren't going to ask that person for their thoughts on how we're doing something, then why are we going to take their perspective and their uh, constructive criticism on things that we do? Uh, we shouldn't. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to ask a complete stranger what they think about me because I don't care because I don't know them and they don't know me. But if I asked like my friend Rebecca or, or Christina or somebody about like, how did you feel that video went? And I was trying to do it more creative. What'd you think? And they didn't, they offered cr constructive criticism, then I might be able to take it personally, I would be able to take it because I asked for it. Number one. And number two, those are people who I really trust. And I know that they would be gentle with it and offer up some tools and, you know, ideas and stuff like that. And so just start cataloging these so we can see if there are certain people that are in common. Maybe there's one person that we just can't take it from them. And is it because of the way they approach it? Is it because we don't like them or we don't respect them or they don't respect us? Or do, you know, I want you to get some of this evidence and this information so that we can better understand what is setting us off. Okay. So that's the first part. Then the second, and it kind of rolls into that is like understanding our response to it. So if we're cataloging all this and we're like, okay, well, this person said this, and I don't think I liked it because... They kept pointing at me and I just, uh, and they, they said things that just sounded demeaning or, you know, 
They acted like I didn't understand. They treated me like a child. You know, there can be a lot of different things that we felt. I want you to acknowledge those things that you felt. And I want you to see if that has happened to you before. Again, we're looking for patterns on this side. So we're looking for patterns on the way that the people have tried to express this constructive criticism. And then I want you to look for patterns on the way that you felt in this emotional experience. Like what are the other situations or experiences in your life where you felt that way? Can we think about it? Is it that coach that you had in high school that you thought was on your side and then was really hurtful and pulled you out on the most important game. I don't know. I'm making things up, you guys, but you get the gist. Think about it. Was it a parent? Is it a teacher? Is it a coach? Is it a whoever, right? Uh, A trainer? I don't know. It could be any number of things. I want you to think about it because really the reason that we get offended and we become defensive around any kind of criticism is because of the way that we're interpreting it and the way that we feel about ourselves. Those are the two types of of reasons. And the way that we feel about ourselves could be we get offended because we don't really feel that good about ourselves anyway. So any kind of criticism, if it feels like a tsunami wave, it just takes us out and we can't, we just can't come back from it. We can't recover. And if that's the case, then I have a video recently I put out about building up your self-confidence, I would encourage you to watch it and try out some of those techniques like building mastery, you know, getting really good at something, uh, treating other people with respect and being kind to others, being kind to ourselves, speaking more kindly to ourselves and all that stuff. So, you know, trying that out could help build our confidence so that these criticisms people make don't, don't feel so painful or aren't such sharp jabs. But then the other is like, you know, maybe how it was expressed to us and in the environment and, and how it was said. And it's important that we understand those things too, because then if someone does really want us to get better and it's someone that we actually care about, then when when they want to give us, they want to offer some more constructive criticism, then we have information we can share with them where we're like, you know what, last time we had a conversation like this, I left just feeling really offended. And I thought about it and I think it's just because sometimes you use this word, you know, or I don't know, you say it this way, or you said something that made me feel like you're talking down to me. And I don't know if that was your intention. And I assume it wasn't. But I just want to tell you because in order for me to be able to hear what you have to say and, and to accept this, you know, constructive criticism, I'm hopeful that we can like try to get rid of that phrasing or something, right? Like if Sean was trying to tell me like, you know, uh, you did this thing poorly with that video or you, I don't think you dealt with that situation very well. Like if it's really abrasive and very direct, I don't deal well with it. And so I could say that I could say, you know, when you, when you come at me really directly with this, when I haven't even asked you about it, I feel overwhelmed immediately. I would prefer if you said, Hey, could we talk a little bit about this? And I I have a few critiques if you don't mind, and then I can welcome it in. There's something about that acceptance and that welcoming in of a conversation about something that can make it feel a little bit better too. The permissions can be given and that can feel better. Those are just some of my thoughts. I hope that that's helpful. It's very common to be deeply offended by people who want to offer constructive criticism. um, And we can be upset and we can lash out, you know, and again, do your research, your personal research, and look for patterns of behavior and thoughts and feelings and all that stuff that we talked about. And hopefully you'll figure out where it's coming from and why. And we can communicate that to the people that we care about because it does get better. We can overcome this urge. Um, sometimes it just takes us a minute to f- figure out why it's happening in the first place. And again, don't take criticism from people you wouldn't turn to for advice. I think that's just great. Such a great quote. Okay. Moving on to question number six says, hi, Katie, you always talk about how we should bring up childhood traumas in therapy, but what exactly would happen when we talk about it? What would the treatment be like? Now, this is going to be different depending on the person, but what would happen when you talk about it is really up to you. I mean, as far as the, what a therapist would do. So if you want to, if the question's more about what a therapist would do, a therapist is going to listen to you validate your experience, ask uh, follow-up questions to better understand so they're not making assumptions about that experience and how you felt and what came up for you. And and then, you know, the treatment would be about, uh, first of all, the, the first portion is usually just like putting it into a coherent narrative, meaning we're trying to piece together what bits of memory we have about the trauma and trying to put it together in a story form that, that 
you know, makes sense because oftentimes our memories of traumas are all over the place, like a ziggy zaggy line, like totally jumbled. And we're not, we don't know what happened first. If, if we struggle and we have multiple traumas, putting together a trauma timeline can be beneficial where we're like, I think this happened first and then this, and then that, that can be helpful as well. And then we're going to move into potentially, uh, talking it through multiple times until it loses its emotional charge. We can try some EMDR therapy. We could try some exposure-based therapy where we try to have you visualize being in a situation or a scenario again and, and having power to not have it happen. You know, there can be a lot of different things that we can do to help you work through it. There are a ton of different trauma treatment options, whether it's like somatic experiencing where it's like through body movement there was a, a bug um, through body movement that we like shake it out um, there, you know, there's a schema therapy where you're, you talk about the different parts of yourself and like what that part of you meant and what they felt during that time. There's a lot of different things that we can do. And so everyone's treatment is going to look different, but when you talk about it, your therapist is just going to, what we call hold the space for you. And I know that's such a therapisty term, but it really just means that we We'll listen. We will seek to understand your experience. We will um, validate you, ask you, you know, questions to to make sure that we understand. We'll have you teach us about your experience, and we'll try to put it together into a narrative form, like into a story that that follows along the timeline. And that's really it. And then work through it in whatever form works best for you. Everybody's different. Um, I think it's something like, and I'm forgetting, but in the body keeps the score, which is a great book. The author talks he he talks about some research, and I'm forgetting now what year it was and who did the research, but um, they found that something like sixty percent of people do not find full resolution of their trauma symptoms just by talking it out and putting it into that story form and talking out till it has no emotional charge. There's like forty or sixty percent of people that need something else. So 40% of people are like, okay, good, I'm moving on. But you know, 60% of people are like, I might need some EMDR, or I might need a trauma group, or I might need some somatic experiencing. So know that, you know, everybody's going to be different. And I know that some of you probably are sick of hearing that, but it's very true, right? Um, it all depends on the person. And I don't want anybody to think that one person's better or worse than the other. We all are deserving of care, and we can all get better. We just have to start talking about it. And we can t bring it up in therapy in many ways, whether it's us just saying it right before we leave, like, hey, by the way, I have this trauma from my teenage years, and I, I want to talk about it next time. But I'm just not ready to talk about it now. Okay, bye. We can do that. Or we can write it down and read from it. Or we can practice saying it out loud for ourselves and, you know, just in front of the mirror to ourselves until we can say it to our therapist. You know, there's a lot of different things. But that's really what will happen. The only thing that I do want to throw in here is because if we are still under 18 and something is happening or has happened recently, sorry, my nose is itching, um, or if there's someone under age that is still around that abuser and we have reason to suspect that it's they're still abusing people, those situations are reasons that your therapist may have to file a report again in Child Protective Services or whatever that's called where you live. So in the States, we, it's called Child Protective Services or some form of that. And you call CPS and you file a report about it um, and they go and investigate. And so that is something to to understand because we want to keep you safe. It, I know people get really mad about it and people feel like it's an invasion of their privacy or like they can't trust their therapist now. And there's been this, you know, the relationship is broken. But the real reason that we do that or that we're legally bound also, we it's like we're mandated. We can't not do it. And it sucks. And even if you told us that someone else already reported it, we still have to report it ourselves because we can't technically believe you. It's all sorts of annoying, but I get it. The reason all those things uh, exist, all those rules and laws exist is to protect you and other uh, people who could potentially be abused. And that's really why we have to do it. So I just want to throw that out there as well. So that you know, in case you're worried about like, what would happen if we talked about it? And I'm 16 and I still live with my abuser, uh, then CPS is going to get called. And I'm sorry, but that's just got to keep people safe. And I also think it's really wrong just because I have to say this when people, I've heard from so many of you that you told one of your, like you told your mom 
or your aunt or someone that you were being abused by the other male in the house or female in the house or whatever situation and they didn't do anything and they didn't believe you and fuck those people i want to punch them in the face and throw hot water on them jerks and that's why therapists have to call and report you know because we don't know if someone's going to take it seriously okay question number seven says hey katie what are some things that you would never say to a depressed person Oh, there's a lot of things I would never say to a depressed person. But I think some of the, and a lot of the comments on this were just spot on. They were like exactly what I was thinking. I would never say to a depressed person, oh, just fake it till you make it. I hate when people say that. Like, just put on a happy face, just smile. Oh my God, just shower. Or other people in the world have it so much worse than you, or it could be worse, or you don't look depressed, or what do you have to be depressed about? Those are just a few that like off the top of my head that just bother me. Yeah. Or something to the effect of like, you know, uh, everybody's depressed these days. You just really need to like get out more or you need to insert thing more. Like you need to smile more. You need to have more fun. Maybe if you got up and out of bed, then you'd feel better. All that stuff is super invalidating and judgmental. And those are the things that do not belong. Those are things that you wouldn't say to someone who is having a tough time. Instead, the things that we should be saying to someone in our life who has either expressed that they're depressed or, you know, um, we worry that they are depressed are things like, I'm here for you. I know this has been a tough time. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help you feel better. Like, that's what we do. Or we just check in. Hey, it's just me just checking in to see how things were going um, and then tell them what we're doing and would love to see you. Or I know COVID makes things tricky, but would love to connect with you sometime soon. Let me know when you're free. Things like that. Those are the things that we want to say, but never say those other invalidating and judgmental things. Because trust me, depression is much more complicated than us having a specific reason to feel depressed. And there's always going to be people that have things worse off than us and that does not negate our pain. There's enough pain, unfortunately, to go around. It's not like pie. It's not like if someone takes one, then somebody else can't feel sad. We can all feel sad when we need to. And that's just hogwash, for lack of a better term. Okay, moving on to question number eight. Now, this question's a little bit longer, and I almost put it in here twice on accident because two people posted it. So one person says, Hi, Katie. I hope you're doing well. So when I was 16 years old, and I'm sorry, this is a trigger warning for anybody, but uh, there's definitely some stuff in here about uh, sexual assault. So just maybe fast forward a little bit, maybe like 10 minutes into the pod. Okay. So when I was 16 years old, I went to a party um, to celebrate the beginning of uni, and I got really, really drunk. And later I learned they put Rohypnol in my drink. I don't remember much, but I remember the pain. They ripped my pants open and they assaulted me. I remember one of them putting a beer bottle inside me and my body just went numb. At one point, I remember turning my head while I was laying on the bed, looking down the window, just trying as hard as I could to leave my body. I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. I could barely breathe. When they finished, I remember looking at myself, my legs, my stomach, everything was hurting. After a few hours, I was able to get on my feet and walk home. I didn't tell anyone. I couldn't. I feel like it was my fault for drinking so much. No, being drunk is not consent. We can get as blasted as we want and no one has a right to do anything to us unless we say it's okay. Actually, when you're, when you're too drunk to, to offer consent or you're too drunk to even be coherent, you can't offer consent. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I feel like it was my fault for drinking so much for not taking care of myself. I was in so much physical and psychological pain. I later went to a doctor and found out that I had lacerations on my vagina She asked me what had happened, but I wasn't able to explain all that happened. I just said that I had sex and the guy was a bit rough. I know I should have said something, but how could I bring myself to say something like this? Now I can't let myself be vulnerable around men. I'm 18 now and I can't have sex. I tried and I freaked out so much. The guy was trying to penetrate me and said that I was too tight because I was freaking scared and that my body was contracting. That's very common. Um, I forget what it's called. Let me look. I think it's vagin. Um, uh, Hold on. Sorry, guys. I don't have someone uh, helping me out. <laughs> like, you know, some people on podcasts have someone looking things up. Um, there's actually a, it's a sign, uh, vaginismus. Yeah, that's when it like, it, the muscles contract. 
And we, it can be because of this. So that sounds like that's what was happening. It says random things trigger me. Like the other day I was sitting outside my classroom reading my book. And then all of a sudden I started sweating and crying. I couldn't stop and I couldn't say what was happening. I feel like I've lost control over my own body. I just want to be back to my old self again, but I don't even remember how, what I was like. I became so self-destructive after all that happened. I started to smoke. I've been hurting myself. I take pills for no reason. I masturbate until I'm in pain. I hate myself. I hate that what I've become. I hate what they did to me. If you have any advice or anything that might help me or help forgive myself, please. Thank you for all that you do, Katie. Of course. And uh, those motherfuckers like to fucking punch them in the face and spit on them. Dickwads and jerks kick them in the nuts. Um, Okay. Now that I got that out, (laughs) the... The fact that there are people in the world that would harm someone else and assault someone. I mean, I like to believe in the good in people, but sometimes it's really hard and people like that make it really hard. So there's a couple of things that I would recommend for you. Okay. The first is get into therapy as soon as possible. Please, please, please. If you have to get on some wait list, if hopefully, because you said it was about university, so it was beginning of uni. And I know things are a little bit different right now, but reach out, see if they have some kind of therapy. Most universities, at least in the States, offer therapy, if not free, for a very discounted rate. Like, I think one of you told me that you had to pay $5 when you went. So please, you know, reach out and get some support. And I also want you to make you aware of some free support groups. And I, I know that there, there's a lot of trauma-based support groups, and I don't know, they have a ton of different groups. They keep opening more up. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource called dot. I think it's .org. It is hopeforrecovery.org, but after the four is a dash. So just Google hope number four recovery. They have a ton. They're a nonprofit organization and they specialize in supporting adult survivors of abuse and sexual trauma. So because you are now 18, you are an adult and you can access that resource and that will hopefully help you take the first step in your process to healing. Um, because trauma is so complicated and having a trauma like that, it takes some processing and healing and some understanding and support from others to help get us through. But trust me when I tell you that it can and will get better. Just know, know that, okay? If you can't believe anything else, just know that with the right support, it can and will get better, okay? So hang in there and Of course, you're doing self-destructive things afterwards because a lot of times we just try to numb out because we're overwhelmed and we don't have any, you know, coping skills, no ways to cope. I would check out my video. I have a video about the 25 coping skills. Search that on YouTube and watch that and pull out some of those that could maybe help you when you want to self-injure, when you want to take pills or smoke or masturbate as a way of self-harming. I want you to consider some of those coping skills and see if those can assist. I know that they don't feel as good. They don't work quote unquote as well, but they're better for us psychologically and physically. And I want you to try to start incorporating those into your like self-care plan, but reaching out for support, getting on -on one-on-one therapy, the hope for recovery has like group therapy, all different times, all different specialties and areas. Um, I would try to find, you know, find some relief from that. And usually I recommend the Courage to Heal workbook, but that's definitely much more focused on like childhood sexual abuse. But the last chapter I do think is still helpful for you. And if you can find a cheap copy on Amazon, there's tons of used copies out there. It doesn't have to be the newest edition. They keep making new editions. And I think any of the editions are fine. I have one of the older ones and I think it's wonderful. But the last, I want to say it's chapter 20 or 19. They talk about like re... It's like taking ownership over your sexuality again and being able to have healthy, happy sex lives with, you know, consensual sex with people that you care about. And so that could really be helpful too. And part of that healing process will allow you to forgive yourself because you didn't do anything wrong. But I know the shame and guilt and embarrassment spiral that any kind of assault or abuse pulls us into. Um, But as you heal, you'd be able to let that go and be able to forgive yourself. Um, And then if you wanted to, the last little bit that I want to bring up is that you can uh, file charges if you know who those people were. And I know our system sucks everywhere. I don't know what it's like where you are, but even in the States, our system blows and they make you uh, tell what happened over and over again. And it's like, uh, uh, it really needs 
I hate politics and I hate stuff like that, but that might be something that I try to get into in the future is like revamping how our police and first responders interact with abuse survivors and, you know, rape and assault and stuff like that, because the system is so flawed. But anyways, um, if you do want to report them, I would encourage you to do so because they are dirtbags and they deserve to pay for what they did to you. You shouldn't be the only one that's left with, you know, left with this and had to deal with it. They have to deal with it too. And those dirtbags should be off the streets. So yeah, so those are my thoughts. It does get better with time and with support. And again, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Just know that drinking does not mean that we are to blame. Women and men out there, people out there should be able to drink as much as they want when they want and not be and not feel that then they are to blame because, you know, they got assaulted like that. That's not how this works. Someone was a a fucking dirtbag and a loser human, a garbage person who deserves to be kicked in the nuts and punched in the face. And us being drunk had nothing to do with their decision making. They just took advantage of a person who was inebriated and actually drugged you. And I just those people just need to be in jail. So I'm sorry that that happened, but it can and will get better. Trust me. Okay, moving on to question number nine says, Hey, Katie, how can I deal with my therapist suddenly being on leave? She was going to tell me she was pregnant two months before she expected to give birth. However, her baby decided to come very early. So I had no warning before she left. How can I deal with this sudden change? I'm so sorry for both you and your therapist, because being a therapist and uh, taking like I had to take leave for my wedding. And that was hard for some people to get around to and get used to. And it was only two weeks. It wasn't, you know, but I know it's hard in pregnancy and birth, they can be gone for, you know, 12 weeks or more. So it can be very difficult. And part of me just feels like the, the process for you most likely will be in journaling and allowing yourself to express what come what came up for you. Is there some sense of abandonment? Um, did we have some attachment to our therapist? Are we angry at her? It's okay to be angry. I want you just to express what you're feeling and what comes up for you and, and journal it out. And then if you're able, I would encourage you to offer some validation and some support to yourself. Like when you're journaling about like, you know, and I was really pissed because it's okay. Again, I said, it's okay to be angry just because she had a life event that she had no control over doesn't mean that we can't still be upset, right? One does not negate the other. They can both happen, right? Simultaneously. So if we feel really angry, allow yourself to be angry and write about it. I'm so pissed that she left and I didn't even get a warning. And now I have to wait like for months and here I am. And then I want you to write to yourself like a letter back to your, like maybe write letters. That would might be easier if you write a letter to yourself and then write a letter back. And the letter back would be like, of course you feel pissed and angry. You didn't get a chance to to prepare. You didn't get a chance to get homework or understanding or given time to process. I would feel, I mean, it sounds weird to do these letters back and forth, but from, from you to therapist you, because I know all of you can slip into therapist role because I've seen you comment back on each other's comments and you offer these insights and beautiful poetic language around how to cope and what you've done. And so I know you've got the tools. So pretend that this is a comment that you read maybe or a letter from someone else. I want you to reply in your most compassionate and validating self. And so writing that back and forth and processing that out will will help you move through it because there's probably a lot coming up for you. Her leaving so quickly, not giving you any warning and then being without for a long time is is in many ways could be considered a trauma or at the very least a, a very extreme upset, right? We can feel like the little I don't know, safety net. That's what I always tell my patients, like I'm their safety net, you know, your safety net could have been felt like it ripped away. And so allowing yourself to feel what you feel, to talk about it, to process it, I think that that will help you move through it. And then obviously, when she returns, you can kind of, you can talk about this more. But I think in the meantime, this will hopefully help you get it out. So you don't feel like you have to just stuff it down, because you can be mad, you can be upset with her. There's room for excitement for her. There's room for anger. There's room for sadness. There's room for feelings of abandonment and attachment. There's room for all of it. 
but we just have to acknowledge it, allow ourselves to feel it, and then put on that, you know, caring, supportive community member or therapist hat that you always use and write back, validating it. Of course you feel that way. I would feel that way. That makes sense based on X, Y, Z. It's okay. I think that'll make us all feel a little bit better. It helps us process things out. Okay, finally, this is the last question. Like I said at the beginning, it's kind of about lockdown and dealing with all of this. So question 10 says, hi, Katie, how do you stay positive during another lockdown without falling back into a negative spiral that 2021 is going to be as bad as 2020? I know I've had those thoughts too. I love sport, specifically water polo, but I haven't been able to play for a year and I can't stop thinking things will never be okay or be quote unquote normal again. I've wondered that too. I've also been really sick and have had an operation a few weeks ago. So everything just feels very overwhelming. Sorry. And I hope this makes sense. It makes total sense. Thank you for all you do. You help me so much. Love from Zimbabwe. <gasps> Amazing. Okay. So this is why at the beginning, I wanted you guys to know that like I'm in it with you and I feel it because I've had those same things. Like I said, like round two, like ding, ding, get back in the ring second time around. And I'm like, I'm not ready. I barely process what happened. And so, <laughs> okay. Cause I just have a lot of thoughts and I have the therapist side of me, but first I'm going to give you the human side of me. I'm having a really fucking hard time with this myself. And I told Sean just the other day when we were walking that I feel like I usually build up so much resiliency, guys. Like I see my friends a lot. I go to my yoga studio. I interact with strangers. I'm friendly to people, let people go first. I paid for people's coffee. I've like paid, paid it forward. And all of this stuff that I try to do in my daily life normally in normal circumstance has helped me feel okay during really turbulent times and shitty situations like my dad passing away or my grandpa passing away or I don't even know, just life, right? Things happen. Shit gets bad. I feel bad. You feel bad, right? Things, ugh. And at the beginning of COVID, I was okay for quite a little while. For maybe like three or four months, I felt mm, okay. And then things started to turn and I've had a more and more difficult time getting out of it. So here's what I've been doing. And I hope that this is helpful. I can offer you like a definite therapisty thing. But right now, I honestly feel like because 2020 slash 2021 is like its own special flavor of shit show that some therapist tools, yeah, they help, but they're not actually practical right now because this is a very, I don't know, it's just a very bleh time, right? Okay. So what I've been doing, and you might think I'm crazy, but here's what I'm doing. I have three things. So three pronged approach, well, maybe four pronged approach. First is... I allow myself to feel like shit and be sad and mad and all the things because at the beginning, I'm going to be honest with you guys, like back in March slash maybe April, May of last year, I like wouldn't allow myself to feel bad about it. I'd be like, no, no, no. We're just going through this thing. It's going to be fine. You know, you try to talk yourself out of it. We have to cry. We have to be angry. It's okay to shout. I was actually thinking of creating a video where I just do all these things and show you guys what I'm doing. Maybe that'd be helpful. I don't know. One or more of those like creative different types of videos, but like, Screaming into a pillow, been very beneficial for me. Screaming in my car, equally beneficial. So letting yourself express it, cry, do whatever. But I don't allow it to go on for very long. I set a timer for like 10 or 20 minutes, okay? And then when it goes off, it takes me a minute. I blow my nose, I get myself situated and I'm like, okay, that was it for today. And you can do that every day. I find that I don't have to, I had to do it every day for a while. I don't have to do it every day anymore, really. Um, and if you feel like you don't have a safe place to cry, the shower works amazing. The shower is a wonderful place. Nobody bugs you in the shower. So you can do it in there. Um, so that's one thing I do is allow myself to feel all the shitty fucking feelings, right? Ugh. We hate them, but we need to feel them. Second is move that body. Gotta move your body. Gotta shake it out. We gotta really shake. I've been going for long walks with Sean going for walks on my own. I've been doing my yoga at the house sometimes, not as often as I would like, but it's just hard because he's in the house and then I hear him and it distracts me. And I'm like, no meditation. It's a whole shit show. So I do that or do some yoga uh, or not yoga, do some other little like step aerobic workout on YouTube or something. So move your body. Okay. So we're feeling the feelings. We're going to move our body. And then I'm going to notice when I'm talking shit about it and pulling myself into a negative spiral. I know we do it. I do it all the time. I like watch the news and then just fall down a fucking dark pit of despair. Or I look up the quarantine rules because Sean and I are like, oh, maybe we'll go to Joshua Tree or maybe we'll, you know, try to go up to Mammoth. 
Airbnb is not allowed, maybe they would, but they're not supposed to be renting to people who are not, uh, you know, healthcare workers or first responders or any of the essential workers, uh, you know, people who are delivering things, all sorts of essential people. So that was thrown out and I could get really down about it and I could let my brain take me into like, this is never going to get better. This is just, we're doing this again. Oh my God, blah, blah. I need, my hair needs to be cut and colored and chicken fucking shitty and my hair, you know, I could just do it. You saw, I just did it for a second right there. And that was just getting, that was just getting going. So I notice when I'm doing it and I tell myself the things that I'm grateful for and the things that are going well. And then I try to come up with something different that I can do. Like for Sean and I, I was like, maybe we could try to, uh, you know, go for a bike ride instead of walking. I know this sounds silly and there's very, it's, some things are more limited than others or weather could be, you know, a diff- difficult thing for other people, but find a different thing that you can try to do something new, something maybe that it involves moving your body and, you know, doing that. So yeah. And then I'm like, I'm grateful for the fact that I'm not ill and neither are any of my family members. We're all okay. I'm very grateful for that. You know, try to think of the things that I'm grateful that Sean and I can put food in the fridge and we can still work right now. Oh, so grateful. And, um, and we've even talked about maybe something we do do is try to give back. Like maybe we can, uh, donate some food or help make food for people or something like that. Right. So consider that. Okay. And then the last thing that I do is I have to escape. I have to distract. Sometimes I'll be honest, I candy crush. There's no shame in the game. You sometimes need to play some candy crush, but something that actually has really helped me uh, before bed is reading a couple of chapters of a book. And also part of one of the things I want to do in 2021 is read a few more books. Like last year, I think I only read like four or five books for pleasure. For work, I don't know. The numbers are, I don't even know. And sometimes for work, I don't even read the full book because I really am looking for like these four chapters about XYZ or memory creation or trauma bonding or who knows. Um, and so I don't read all of it because I don't, you know, I'm not needing all of it for a video or the book or whatever. So, but for fun, purely for fun book reading, I read a chapter or two before I go to bed. And that has stopped the spirals a little bit, you know, like probably 70% of the time, which is a great percentage, I think. And so I've been making some more time for that. Now, that's just what worked for me. I think for a lot of us, it's just the way that we think about things and what we allow our brain to focus in on. And of course, it wants to focus in on the quarantine and things that are taken away, because that feels like a threat, because fuck, it is a threat. It's a virus. But there are things that we can do. And I've been trying to focus on the things I can do instead of the things I can't do. And so I hope that that helps. I feel it too. I've been feeling like crying today. So maybe today's a cry day. Maybe it's a cry day for you. It's totally okay. We're in it together. I love you all. Thank you so much for, first of all, you all are amazing. I do not say this enough, how grateful I am for our community as a whole. Just know how important you are, how valuable the relationship that I have with you is to me, how much I value it. I value your feedback. I value the the engagement that you have with each other and the way that you validate each other's experiences and, and understanding and just you're so compassionate and loving. And I'm just so grateful to have you around. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing me to keep doing what I do. And keep, thank you for sending in your questions and being so vulnerable with me and with our community you have no idea how many lives you've changed by being you and by being brave enough to share your story. And I'm just every week, every day, I'm amazed by each and every one of you. 2021 will be a better year because we're going to make it a better year. We can't control everything, but we can control our reaction to it, right? And so allow yourself to feel the shitty feelings because controlling our reaction doesn't mean our reaction always has to be this you know, positive thing. Toxic positivity is a real thing. I have a video about it if you want to know what I'm talking about. But allowing yourself to feel those feelings and still move forward knowing that we can work for a better future. I think those are all just great things. But I love you all. Happy New Year. We're going to make this year amazing. I'm going to do my best to make some creative shit that distracts you for a little bit, makes you think a little bit differently. I'm going to do my best to do that. And you do your best to take care of yourself and take care of each other. I love you and I will see you next week. A plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always 